Welcome to Three Panel Contrast, a podcast that puts certain comics and certain academic minds into contrast with others. For as long as Little Nemo has been falling out of bed, imagination, particularly childhood imagination, has been linked to the comic, whether in strip or book form. For this month's episode, we'll be looking at two works wherein the child protagonists use fantasy and imagination to cope with their everyday life. Bill Watterson's acclaimed comic strip Calvin and Hobbes, and Joe Kelly and J.M. Ken Nomura's I Kill Giants. Anna will also be reviewing animal comics, multi-species story worlds, and graphic narratives, an essay collection on animals and graphic storytelling edited by David Herman. Close your eyes and imagine you're sitting here with us for a discussion on anthropomorphism, childhood, and how many times I can mix up the title I Kill Giants and Kui Gwen's She Kills Monsters. today at Dr. Michael Hancock, and I'm joined by Dr. Anna Pippard. Hello. <laughs> and by Dr. Deman. Uh, hello. Anna, would you kick things off by telling us about Bill Watterson's Kelvin and Hobbes? Well, that is a grand task, but I will do my best. Um, so Kelvin and Hobbes is almost ubiquitous enough to need no introduction, but um, I'll give it a shot anyway. Calvin and Hobbes by Bill Watterson was produced as a syndicated daily comic strip between 1985 and 1995. It was Watterson's choice to stop producing the strip. At the time, in a short letter to readers, Watterson said, I believe I've done what I can do within the constraints of daily deadlines and small panels, and that he was eager to work at a more thoughtful pace with fewer artistic compromises. Though Watterson was never big on publicity and actively fought against the licensing of Calvin and Hobbes, since concluding the strip, he's been even more, even more reclusive. He turns down basically every interview request and hasn't produced any new comics since 1995. Calvin and Hobbes has won pretty much every comics industry award there is and is routinely cited as one of the all-time great American comic strips. It's combined this critical praise with tremendous popularity. At its height, Calvin and Hobbes appeared in over 2,400 newspapers worldwide, and almost 45 million copies of the Calvin and Hobbes treasuries have been sold. Just in case there's anyone out there who might not be familiar with the exact content of the strip, it stars Calvin, an outspoken, creative, and sometimes murderously-minded young boy, and his best friend Hobbes, a stuffed but maybe alive tiger. Watterson always said he wasn't interested in the mechanics of Hobbes' existence. For Watterson, the fact that Hobbes did exist was enough. The characters are named after the philosophers John Calvin and Thomas Hobbes, a fact which confused me a great deal when I first learned it as a teenager. I felt then, and to an extent I still feel now, that the world of Calvin and Hobbes is complete enough without this intertext. Other, arguably more important influences on the strip include George Harriman's comic strip Crazy Cat, Walt Kelly's Pogo, and Charles Schultz's Peanuts. Like Crazy Cat, Pogo, and Peanuts, Calvin and Hobbes uses child and animal differences and perspectives to comment on topics both practical and existential, <coughs> but rarely does so heavy-handedly. Calvin's sermonizing about the meaning of life usually occurs aboard a fast-moving wagon or toboggan and usually ends in a spectacular crash. On a personal note, Calvin and Hobbes had a tremendous influence on me as a child and as a young adult. I've always been aware of this influence, but rereading the strips for the first time in a long time in preparation for this episode, I could see more clearly than I used to how much I modeled some of my young rebellions after Calvin in both positive and negative ways. I'm hoping the complex nature of the comic's influence is something we can talk about today. And Andrew will be guiding us through I Kill Giants. Thank you. First published in 2008, I Kill Giants is a collaboration between veteran North American comics writer Joe Kelly and then newcomer to North American comics J.M. Ken Miyamura, drawing what Kelly himself refers to as a, quote, loose manga style, end quote. I Kill Giants ran as a seven-issue series published by Image Comics before being collected as a one-volume trade paperback. In 2017, the story was made into a major motion picture with Kelly himself writing the screenplay. The story follows Barbara Thorson, a nerdy girl with an anger streak and an obsession with Dungeons and Dragons. A social outcast, Barbara uses fantasy and imagination to cope with the hardships of the world around her. Specifically, she focuses on the notion that she is a giant slayer who must protect her community from the forthcoming doom of a giant attack. We later learn, spoiler, that the giant attack is a metaphor for the weight and destruction to Barbara's own life that is forthcoming in the form of the imminent demise of her ailing mother and that Barbara's fantasy world is a retreat from dealing with that inevitability. Or, perhaps more accurately, it's a coping mechanism based in denial. 
The giant attack is looming and Barbara refuses to accept it. In some ways this plot might sound familiar. We've seen it before in the realm of fantasy and it works great. I will happily disclose that Guillermo del Toro's Pan's Labyrinth, as an example, is my favorite movie of all time. Stories that show the value of imagination and fantasy in times of hardship are almost cliché at this point in our culture. What makes Kelly and Neymar's take unique and captivating is the portrayal of, simply put, going too far. Barbara's inability to navigate the divide between fantasy and reality is damaging, both to her and to the people around her who care for her. In this sense, the character is quite reminiscent of Holden Caulfield from Catcher in the Rye fame. Barbara's fantasy departures are cute at first, whimsical even, in a very Calvin and Hobbes way. But she goes too far and people get hurt. And the whimsy of the story, the spell that it casts, actually helps the reader get in her head and to participate to some degree in her tragedy. Barbara needs the giants to be real, and that need is tearing her life apart. And as much as we want Barbara to be okay because she's a really sympathetic character, we also want the giants to be real, and thus we effectively enable her. This book isn't perfect. I have problems with the ending in particular that we can talk about. But it's a beautiful little graphic novel that hits you right in the feels with the force of a giant's fist. Let's call him a genre scholar, literary scholar. Uh, Todorov wrote a book on a genre he identified as the fantastic. And the idea behind the fantastic is that we're presented with a fantasy scenario and it is very much left open-ended as to whether what we are seeing is real or whether it's the product of some imagination. If it slides into the imagination, that is, that whatever fantastic elements there are uh, are just the delusions of someone's mind, then he argues that the work slips into the uncanny. If it turns out this fantasy is real, then he argues that what we're dealing with is the marvelous, that the fantastic always sits on this kind of razor blade between the two of them. Uh, in light of that, then, how do you think these two texts approach the fantastic and are they doing something different with it? Well, I mean, I don't know if we even want to start with the problems you have with the ending of I Kill Giants, Andrew, because it is sort of perhaps one of the biggest differences between these two texts. I mean, I Kill Giants and Calvin and Hobbes are obviously very different in the sense that I Kill Giants is a discrete narrative, whereas Calvin and Hobbes is not. But I don't know. Do you want to speak to a little bit about the sure. issues you have? Yeah, I, I think um, in, in I Kill Giants, maybe what we're not really dealing with is imagination so much as potentially psychosis. Yeah. Um, we have a child who is actively in a state of denial, um, trying to find ways to deal with a, an absolutely traumatic life experience. Uh, with Calvin, what we have, to me, personally, is more of a celebration of the power of imagination to make a childhood magical. There's no doubt in Calvin. We frequently see Hobbes as a stuffed animal from the perspective of anyone other than Calvin. The point is that Hobbes is real to, to him. Uh, in the case of I Kill Giants, we have um, a child who... Um, would probably be a great deal better off, according to the logic of the narrative, to deny the fantastic, to leave the magical behind. It's, at best, helping her get to a place where she needs to be to accept reality. At worst, it's um, um, withholding healing from her uh, until she's able to accept it. So I, I think there's a certain... Um, almost animosity in the relationship between Barbara and the Fantastic and I Kill Giants, where I don't I don't see that tension at oh, all. Is, is there some animosity in the book titled <laughs> I Kill Giants? Maybe a little. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that. well, how do you interpret the ending then in terms of, you know, that scene where she sees the giant outside the window and has that exchange with it even after she's accepted sort of the difference between fantasy and reality? Do you see that as a confirmation that the fantastic can still exist in this world, or is that just a symbolic gesture? Totally symbolic gesture. Yeah. Thanks for coming, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> see you never, ever, ever again. Yeah, I feel like <laughs> I wanted it to be different than that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know. And as I said, the, the book does a good job of like um, withholding that, that reveal, coming back to um, um, the theory Michael's talking about here. Uh, it, it's possible this is a fantastic text, and maybe there are giants, but it really doesn't look like it. Uh, again, she's the only one who can kind of see them. Um, other people like the idea of it. They like the fantasy the same way she's a really good DM, right? 
she's able to to create um, fantasies that other people can participate in. In that sense, she's very much like the author. Uh, and, and again, we have that kind of metatextual layer where the reader is um, immersed in that in, in a kind of interesting way. Um, but as I said, I, I think it's it's night and day from what Calvin and Hobbes is doing with that relationship to the fantastic. It, it, it's part of his childhood. It does have at least that same where it's one, it's all centered around one character who sees the world in a fantastic light and everyone else is a more mundane approach, so to speak. And I don't know if you'd agree with this, Anna, but, but my interpretation of Calvin is that as much as he's constantly being singled out as the weird kid, he's still very much an every person. Like, like we are all Calvin when we read yeah. Calvin and Hobbes, even though Calvin is weird within the context of his school or community. Well, I was going to ask you guys how you interpret, even though I said in my introduction that it shouldn't matter about the nature of Hobbes and the strip. But I mean, it is obvious that he's Calvin brings him to life through his imagination and he appears as a stuffed animal to other people. But at the same time, I don't feel like that's how I read the strip. I read the strip as the reality is the reality of Calvin and Hobbes and their friendship and the rest of it is almost an illusion just because the one thing is set up as being more real and meaningful than the other thing. So as much as that's obvious, it maintains that tension quite effectively, I hmm. think. I, yeah, I think there's... A difference between Calvin's other imaginings and Hobbes. Mm -hmm. We are meant to treat Hobbes as a real character, mm -hmm. whereas we understand that when Calvin's pretending to be a dinosaur or Spaceman Spiff or something, that this is a pretending based on reality, whereas Hobbes is kind of his own reality. Well, Hobbes, you know, makes fun of Calvin, talks back to Calvin, yeah. doesn't do what Calvin wants all the time, so he's a discreet character in that respect. Yeah. I mean, he's often interpreted as Calvin's superego, yeah. uh, which is really interesting in the context that, that Hobbes is the imaginary construct. Uh, normally, you think of like um, the raging id uh, as the, the, the fantasy character, and in this text, it's not that at all. Well, maybe this strip is anti-Freudian. Maybe that's why I like it so much. <laughs> maybe this is the proof that Freudianism is all a lie. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what about the morality of fantasy and of the fantastic in either of, of these strips. I mean, getting back to kind of that influence and, you know, child behavior and, you know, all of these things. I mean, I already said, you know, like I did things like I acted out in sort of a model after Calvin when I was a kid, you know, in certain ways. And I mean, I don't think I did anything really bad, but I definitely, part of my childhood narcissism was informed by Calvin's narcissism, I would say. I mean, things like thinking I was so clever and so smart and so special was sort of confirmed by the way Calvin is portrayed in the strip to me. And I mean, I wonder if that's sort of like one of the negative qualities of it almost, just in the sense that I don't think Watterson thinks he's doing that. Like, I think he thinks he's portraying Calvin as a negative character. But when you read this when you're 10, it doesn't come across that way. Or maybe I'm just completely off base. I mean, I do think he has a fondness for Calvin. But when I'm reading the commentary in the 10th anniversary book, he doesn't frame it that way. He's like, Calvin is a bad person. Right. But it, again, did not seem that way to me when I was 10. I, I don't know if I... Except his own reading of well, his Well, I, I think that he's not <laughs> being honest, that, also. Well, I mean, so often, especially in the Sunday strips, Calvin is very clearly, like, a mouthpiece for Watterson yeah. to, like, play around with some sort of psychological idea or philosophical idea. Um, I know Calvin is very often also the one that gets to voice, like, the materialistic perspective, which it is very clear that Watterson is not a fan of, mm. but I don't know. I, I see him valorized a lot. Uh, let me frame this in terms of some of the literature that's been written about Kevin and Hobbes. Uh, this is James Holt McGavern. In the introduction to the collection, he put together Literature and the Child, Romantic Continuations, Postmodern Contestations. Ooh, that sounds like an article Watterson would hate. <laughs> <laughs> or almost like make fun of in the strip. Yeah. As, yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, but basically, uh, he makes the argument that Calvin and Hobbes, Calvin represents an almost Wordsworth sort of childhood innocence and imagination that, quote, 
Through its 10-year history, Calvin and Hobbes confirms Alan Richardson's argument that the American childhood at the end of this century continues to be haunted, for better or for worse, by romantic conflicts of identity which polarize an autonomous imperial self and an other located variously in nature, in society, and or within that same self. And wow. where I think that kind of relates to imagination is that if there is one thing absolutely idealized about Calvin, it's this idea that he is better than the people around him because he is so imaginative. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's where I'm kind of getting at in terms of it being an influence on me as a child. I have felt a lot of pressure as a child not to grow up because there was something special about the imagination that's inherent to childhood and being in a very creative household, I felt a lot of pressure related to this. Huh. And I mean, all of the classic children's stories have that message. And I mean, I remember reading the Narnia books and how Susan doesn't get to go to heaven mm. because she starts dating and wearing lipstick. <laughs> I was like, well, I don't want that to happen to me. I want to still be able to go to Narnia. And if you grow up, you can't go. And I mean, I played with toys until I was 12. I was like, wanted to hang on to that world. And I mean, it's funny because, yeah, I Kill Giants suggests that you do have to abandon that and live right. in the real world, but that seems like such a stark choice in that book. One of the things that I do think rereading Calvin and Hobbes is a little bit different, and I would argue a little bit better, is that it does maintain that tension to a degree. Well, I agree mm. that Calvin is this romanticized figure and not giving up on imagination is so central to the Hobbes thing. If he gives up on imagination, he loses his best friend, which is horrible. Right. But he's also not an idealized figure. I think he's less imbued with childhood innocence than mm. I find the characters in Peanuts, which is maybe a comparison we could get into a little bit, only because I'm a little bit of a Peanuts naysayer. Well, we should absolutely do a comparison someday of, like, 1950s Peanuts and where it actually went. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I, I would fight for 50s Peanuts. 50s no, Peanuts I know, and I'm, I'm a comic scholar. I, <laughs> I, I know that it is important and good, despite my personal reservations about it. But... Calvin is also very negative in obvious ways. That's I mean, he tries to, he has fantasies about bombing his school and things like <laughs> that. Would, so, yes, I mean, you know, today. <laughs> I don't think Watterson in those moments is saying that these are good things. That is fair. I think he is saying that Calvin is a six year old and sometimes mm. has profound insights, and other times is just a horrible, narcissist, bad person. Maybe but, it's more Hobbes that's the idealized figure, that Hobbes. I think whenever Hobbes and Calvin are in a philosophical disagreement, it's almost always Hobbes that's in the right. Yeah, That's true, but then he's got kind of an animal simplicity yes. to him too, which is also not tenable. I mean, no, sure. sure. It's not he, tenable, he just wants lunch, yeah. like a lot of the time too. He's pretty zen too, though. He is. He, he's he got is. a Taoist thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I would just say, um, just to elaborate on what Anna was saying, um, the, the comparison to, to I Kill Giants, uh, it, it is significant, coming back to what you're saying about how, you know, if Calvin matures, he loses Hobbes, he loses his childhood. Um, Barbara loses her bunny ears, the, the, this yeah. obvious visual signifier of, of the childhood she's holding on to. And in I Kill Giant, we're supposed to look at that as she's healing or yeah. possibly even healed. Uh, whereas in Calvin and Hobbes, I mean, there's the Toy Story 3 mentality that at some point he has to say, you know, goodbye partner to, to Hobbes. And at best, some other kid picks up this ratty stuffed animal. Yeah, that's the two kind of future Calvin comics that you see on the internet. That a lot. You see them takes, a lot. Uh, he takes some drugs and Hobbes disappears, <laughs> or he gives Hobbes to his daughter. Oh, yes, gosh. I've seen the daughter one come up. It's adorable. But still, I, I mean... Well, I will say I don't feel that pressure of that narrative as intensely in Calvin and Hobbes as in something like, say, like Charlotte's Web or... Mm -hmm. I mean, what would be another go? Oh, Velveteen Rabbit, which <laughs> just destroyed me as a kid. Like, I mean, oh, yeah. I just, mm -hmm. as a kid, I like if there were abandoned toys or the last one at a toy store, I was like, we have to buy it because it's got a consciousness and this is going to be terrible. And I mean, I had so much, again, just like pressure to not grow up because of some of those narratives. I don't feel that as strongly with Calvin and Hobbes. I don't know why. Yeah. I mean, again, maybe it kind of goes back to that thing I was talking about where the nature of this reality is never clear enough to make that narrative that focused it is a possibility that you know calvin can still be calvin without hobbes hmm. i don't know i'm not sure why i feel that way though i guess maybe because he's got sort of these other fantasies and mm -hmm. has these other ideas and does these other things that i can see him existing without hobbes i mean there's an interesting connection there to contemporary culture where i mean you have bands like 21 pilots just singing about how you know i wish i could go back to my childhood 
Uh, that, that seems to be a very millennial thing these days. But as we were talking about before the podcast, it seems like millennials aren't super aware of Calvin and Hobbes anymore, uh, which is maybe tragic. Well, millennials and Wordsworth. <laughs> well, the funny thing about that, though, is like as an adult, I mean, since I've been, let's say, over 25, I absolutely don't want to go back to childhood. I mean, hmm. I, I have a Calvin and Hobbes strip like open right here where he is having this day where he goes to school and gets like beat up by the bully Mo and doesn't know the answers to the test and just has kind of a horrible time and then comes home and his mom is like, don't worry, Calvin, tomorrow will be another day. And he just sighs with this existential <laughs> dread and fear. And Watterson's commentary on the strip is, I don't know why people always want to portray childhood as an idyllic time, because yeah. it's not. And I mean, it makes me think of the Ray Bradbury story about the carousel that turns you into a child, mm. the name of which I can't remember, which is horrible because it's such an iconic story. And the terror in that story is the idea of being reduced to a child. Right. And then you're a child and you're trying to tell people who you are and no one believes you and they just put you in an orphanage, you know? Because, I mean, the loss of control of going from being an adult to a child, I find terrifying now that I am an adult. But when I was 10, I found the idea of growing up terrifying. Yeah. So and I think I, that just means I've progressed the way you're supposed to. <laughs> but, so when you read Calvin, do you read him as a child? Because it, it is drawing yeah. from that, that, that sort of Schultz idea of the, the cartoon child as a representation of the child within the adult. Mm -hmm. Like Calvin says, thinks, and does very adult things. Well, I, I think one of the benefits of Watterson is how he can switch almost seamlessly between the two. That... You can get Calvin the philosopher and also right. Calvin the six-year-old, the guy that, you know, is inventing another weird thing so he doesn't have to do his homework. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that again gives us a comparison to I Kill Giants in the sense that Barbara is very clearly portrayed as a child. Yeah, She's that's not a, a stand-in for an adult state but of But there is a certain level of precociousness to her. She's the, true. She's yeah. the child who is also DMing a group of, yeah. uh, <laughs> let's say, maturity uh, arrested Boys. And she holds them accountable for their choices, yeah. <laughs> which is that, kind of awesome. That's true, though. That does strike me as a strong difference, that Calvin has that flexibility that he can go between those different roles. And I mean, that's sort of what I mentioned with the nature of the fantasy as well, whereas I Kill Giants is a bit more set on what's fantasy, what's mm -hmm. real, who's a child, who's an adult. Yeah, there, there's a, I mean, coming back to your comparison to Crazy Cat, there's there's an air of surrealism around yeah. Calvin and Hobbes that I would argue is necessary to make it work. Mm -hmm. um, and and is really in, engaging. This thing casts a horrible spell. Uh, and you can spend a lot of time in Calvin's world. We've talked a little bit already about some of the influences on Watterson, that he has been very upfront that he was influenced by Peanuts, Pogo, and Crazy Cat? Crazy Cat, yeah. Crazy Cat. Uh, what other influences do we see in his work? What influences do we see in I Kill Giants? And what influence do we see these works having on other comics? Maybe that's a little too early to tell for I Kill Giants, but I think we can certainly talk about the influence that Calvin and Hobbes has had. To me, when Calvin and Hobbes was in the newspaper, you know, every day and on the weekends, I just, there's nothing that currently appears in any of the newspapers I read. But, I mean, I, I like those new Nancy comics. Mm -hmm. They're great, but they're not in our newspapers in Canada, so I have to read those. Oh, I, I, do any of us, or do you read the newspaper comic strips? I, I did when I was I mean, living with I mean, my I parents know last that, year. But that, that my, is, my dad yeah. still, when he first gets the paper, that's mm. the first thing he takes out. And he does read mm. them, and then it becomes sort of a point of, um, <laughs> I don't know, like a point of identification for everyone to read them and just complain about how bad they are. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I feel like that's kind of part of the function of them. But he well, still talks about how much now, he misses, right? misses Calvin and Hobbes. Yeah, well, even, even Calvin is still reappearing. This is supposed to be the dark ages of newspaper comic strips. Unfortunately, Calvin might have been the last great newspaper comic strip. People say that, which is probably nostalgic glasses thinking yeah, a little bit. For sure. That the nature yeah. of that form has changed since then in some ways. Well, I mean, I've found a speech that uh, Watson gave at the Festival of Cartoon Art in 1989. And even then, his chief complaint was the newspaper comic strip used to be great and creative, 
but now it's crap. I mean, I would say, I don't know if I have like a grand thesis about this, but web comics are more sort of where the creativity there has mm-hmm. gone. Yep. I mean, newspapers are struggling to survive even more now than they were in 1995. So even though Watterson has made arguments about he thinks that good comics would help sell newspapers, I, I don't know that that's really going to stem the tide of where things are heading. I mean, I generally read all of my news online. I don't buy the newspaper. I mean, I just said mm-hmm. the only time I was reading it is when I was living with my parents and they bought the newspaper because they're old. But <laughs> so I don't know. But I mean, there are so many wonderful things that people are doing with web comics that I see as more. And I don't have a specific example at hand that would be like a direct sort of legacy of Calvin and Hobbes type of thing. But it's certainly where I would look for something more comparable than in the actual newspaper. The most yeah direct connection that jumps to mind, and I don't even know if this is a outright influence. Uh, Scotty Young. Yeah. And. I mean, uh, I hate Fairyland in particular. Uh, it's a female protagonist, but I feel like very Calvin in a sort of chaotic world weirdness. Well, I mm-hmm. definitely see the stylistic influence and, there. Yeah, a, vi- a very clear visual. Al- although influence. the artwork there is a little bit cuter, I would say. Mm-hmm. Or maybe a lot Deliberately cuter. so, yeah. as that's kind of what he's yeah. speaking against. Yeah. In terms of I Kill Giants, I think it was a good... I think the introduction of Niyamura to North American comics mm-hmm. was was notable. I think that idea of sort of um, almost like a fusion style yeah. uh, between manga and North American comics, that's by no means something that was first introduced in 2008. I would point to earlier precursors like, say, Craig Thompson's Blankets, which has a lot of manga influences, is kind of popularizing that. Um, well, I mean, that's been happening just in superhero comics as well as indie comics since yeah. the 80s, really. Yeah, exactly. So, I, I mean, it's not really having a notable influence there but in terms of um, putting together a narrative that is more long form is outside the superhero tradition yeah. and very um, I don't want to say artistic because that's that's snotty um, but, but artistically inflected it's trying to tell a very serious story in North America using the manga style I don't think a lot of people have tried that usually when they bring manga over it's to harken back to nostalgia and bombast um, and or tell a very like manga influenced type of story yeah I mean if there is an artist that I, I look at as maybe being influenced by Niyamura it would be Babs Tarr who we've, mm. we've covered before you can see kind of a little bit of um, um, a connection there uh, between the two texts well one of I've I've read a few uh, interviews Nomura's done about this series, and one of the influences I found really inf- interesting is that he said he was uh, influenced by video games, specifically uh, Shadow of the Colossus, which is a game about killing giants. Yeah, and, and a I, beautiful I have, and heartbreaking game and about killing giants. Yeah, I, I think you're going. We're going to if we're not already seeing it, we will see a lot more comic art influenced by video game art as that's for sure what comic artists are growing up with now but mm-hmm. I, I really like that connection well i brought up peanuts earlier and my sometimes annoyance with peanuts and the fact that i like calvin and Hobbes a lot better since it is one of the direct influences on calvin and Hobbes. i leave it to you guys to perhaps defend peanuts to me and I can say some of the reasons why I like Calvin and Hobbes better. <laughs> I mean, I like it a little bit better because I find it a little bit more... Um, I like Calvin's anger and ferocity a little bit better than I like the personalities of the characters in Peanuts, who I do find, despite that like misery that hangs over them, to be just a little bit too innocent or a little bit too something for me. I don't know. I sort of like the rebellious anger of Calvin a little bit more. It seems like... <laughs> Well, when I was a kid, I probably would have said it seemed more badass, but I kind of still feel like that as an adult. <laughs> but I don't know. Defend it to me. Why am I wrong? Michael, you want to do this? You want me to do it? I'll, I'll take a stab at it. Um, you are not wrong. In terms <laughs> I can of, be wrong. I, no. Well, in terms of like I anything disagree. that has happened, <laughs> I think in terms of the peanuts I grew up with, that like the peanuts that was being published in the 80s and 90s, I agree that a lot of it especially i think over the course of the series schultz defanged charlie brown yep which is interesting that he becomes this character that the world is put upon rather than someone who puts himself on the world so to speak as calvin does yeah yeah no i and, agree with that i mean i've read the original ones too as well as obviously growing up with and the... without going too far into that it's a really interesting shift that 
in a his own way, Charlie Brown is also an everyman character in that like good grief form, but it's a very different archetype. Well, I can accept the peanut strip with the meaning that people have tried to tell me is there that, you know, you're not supposed to like Charlie Brown, that he well, is kind yeah. of like a jerk and he sucks. And, but it's exactly what you said, right? He's not supposed to be necessarily this venerated everyman. He's supposed to be, yeah, like he kind of sucks. And when I can think about that meanness inflecting the strip, I like it a lot better. But I guess, yeah, the ones I grew up with, I didn't see that. I saw like, I'm supposed to feel so bad for him. Mm-hmm. all the time and i hated that because yeah, i don't see right. why i should feel that way he hasn't earned that okay so i i would compare peanuts to two things that don't seem like they should be compared to peanuts um the first is x-men comics uh, as i was saying before the pod the same way that that, that wolverine kind of ruined x-men comics by being so popular and becoming so central snoopy <laughs> ruined peanuts Snoopy was a side character in the 50s stuff his popularity as a like mascot made all the media kind of push in that direction and and the strip lost its focus and and maybe helping to explain that the other thing i would compare it to is the rolling stones uh, a band who is absolutely amazing at the start and then coasted for the majority of their career on their prior successes Uh, the fact of the matter is peanuts ran for 50 years 1950 to 2000 and he died the day the last strip came out it's it's perfect i didn't even know that that's true wow but I would argue that of those 50 years, the good ones are the first 10, maybe 15. Yeah. Uh, so the majority of the run is just kind of a pale imitation of itself. Yeah. If there's one thing to give Watterson a lot of credit for, it's yeah, quitting. when to know to stop. 10 years when to call out. yourself. When to realize for yourself that based on what I am working with, this is where it peaks. Yeah. So you don't become, again, this kind of pale imitation. That and even that, knows. I think reading one of the later volumes, I think he gets a lot more inventive with form, but the actual, like, really standout stories are fewer and further apart. Well, I really wonder about, I mean, I talked about a little bit in my intro, Watterson's resistance to licensing Calvin and Hobbes, and mm-hmm. the, that includes ad- adaptations, you know, resisting doing a cartoon or a film or anything of that nature. Because to me, that has cheapened Peanuts for me as well over the years, like we were talking about earlier, you know, like, <laughs> The Peanuts characters are like the mascots from Dairy Queen to me. They weren't something that I thought of as being artistic in the same way that Calvin and Hobbes was, which was, you know, sort of elevated to me by the fact that most of the time I did read it kind of in these nicely bound treasury collections and you didn't see Calvin just postured all over everything. I didn't have a cartoon that had given him a voice, which I personally am very grateful for because part of my intense identification with this strip I think is dependent on it being able to not have like a set voice that is going to kind of alter the meaning for me or make it a certain thing. It can be kind of whatever you want. And that flexibility we talked about earlier is, is kind of part of that. And Mm -hmm. I just, to me, if it was, there was voice actors involved, I just, it makes me shudder. I just like can't stand (laughs) the idea of it. It would make so much money though. Well, I don't know. That you, might, you that might so be, much on the table. It might just okay. be me, though. I'm like a bit hostile <laughs> to adaptations in general. I mean, kind well, of when they did Daredevil, I was just like, no, a physical person can't be Daredevil. He is this <laughs> idea to me that's so pure that a human being cannot embody him. Well, oh, man. what I found interesting looking at some Watterson interviews is that the one thing, the one medium adaptation or franchisement that he does not entirely dismiss is animation mm-hmm. that he was like i don't know how that would work i see some po- possibility in the medium and maybe there is a world where we got a calvin and Hobbes film or out of it and that would have been a strange thing i don't know to me though the strip is so comic specific i mean i have a strip open yeah. here well which- not yeah i'll let let you finish no it's okay sorry i have a strip open here where it's you know one of the ones where his dad is razzing him about they're not going to get a christmas tree they're just going to like pick one up after new year's when everybody else is throwing them out and calvin is just (laughs) reacting like hysterically and it is the gap between the panels that kind of makes it funny you know his escalating terror at this idea of not getting a christmas tree and i just can't imagine that in animation i wouldn't get Mm -hmm. the same feeling from it or some of the um stupendous man ones where he always does this image of him just (coughs) flying shooting through the air in the middle of space if that was a continuous sequence of him jumping and flying it wouldn't be as funny as just 
suddenly Rosalind opens the door and there he is suspended in space, the way he's imagining himself and that timing, which is so crucial to the comic book form. I just don't see that being that way in animation. I entirely agree. And not just comic book form, the comic strip form, that he isn't, for all he, Watterson complains about the constraints, he is an absolute master in using those constraints yeah. and using yep. the pacing of the panels. He's one of the best draftsmen in the history of comics. Uh, and that was the other influence Michael had mentioned that we didn't talk about it uh, later was um, Windsor McKay, Little Nemo in Slumberland. Mm-hmm. You see a lot of that here and just pure technical proficiency. Uh, he, he can make comics layouts better than maybe anybody. It, it, it's amazing to behold. Maybe this is a good moment to touch briefly on our other work because it does it, have it a live-action <laughs> adaptation. I, it is hard. available on Netflix. Which only so. one of us has seen, yes, even I, though we were This is why this you share notes. Um, <laughs> I assumed everyone else had seen it, and I was the late one, and it turned out just me. I think it's, it is a good indication of especially where stereotype, a cliche that, like, Image comics, especially, are written for the film adaptation, some of them. Mm -hmm. And while this may not have been that, uh, Kelly has explicit... Well, I mean, first, it's worth establishing Kelly's experience in these medium. That as a member of the writing team, Man of Action, uh, he's been involved in as lead writer for Ninja Turtle cartoons, Mega Man cartoons... Uh, the Ben 10 series is Men of Action, are the, or Man of Action is the creative team behind creating those. So very well versed in writing for at least animated form. And I, I've seen in interviews where he said he started the film adaptation, the script for I Kill Giants, before he had an artist for the comic. Oh, wow. Uh, and I think that shows. It's a very close adaptation. Uh, is it okay with everyone if I just kind of encapsulate a mini film review here yeah do it yeah sure i think the film adds something in the sense that all of the actors performances are excellent there are very few changes from the book and to the point where any changes even in the dialogue become really noticeable that it downplays the dungeons and dragons element Uh, it, it does have a scene where she tries to get her siblings to play and it almost recasts it as if she had successfully done that, she wouldn't have needed the giants, mm-hmm. which is an interesting reinterpretation there. Uh, another notable change is that there's a moment where I think she winds up getting suspended because of what she says to her gym teacher. Is that how it works in the book? Um, she doesn't get no. suspended, no. though, okay. does she? The te- the, uh, I think she does for the The slides, counselor right? stands in, yeah. or steps in. Uh, they change, yeah, in the book... Uh, she basically makes a homophobic lesbian joke. She makes that joke in the yeah. book as well, but I don't know. No, think she... it doesn't happen in the film. Oh, it doesn't happen in the film. I think that's Which a good is, choice. Yeah. Good choice. Yeah. Uh-huh. I think it would, even in the book, it's a step pretty far, even though it's clear that, it's reasonably clear that she is doing it to uh, distract rather than any sort of sentiment on her part. I, I think it would play a lot differently coming from a live person. And it's, yeah. it's interesting to note those kind of shifts. Uh, the book, as a final one, the film also takes out all of the fantastic elements except the giants. Mm-hmm. So we don't have any of the little fairy creatures that hang around. And I think that's another interesting narrowing that even more so the giants are a symptom rather, or the fantastic is a symptom rather than uh, a magical world that she has entry to. Well, mm-hmm. I wonder if that's part of... This gets us back to the comparison of Calvin and Hobbes, though, in terms of Calvin and Hobbes not perhaps being as adaptable, because so crucial to this world of Calvin and Hobbes is Calvin being able to act as kind of an adult surrogate character Mm -hmm. and a child character. You know, the tension between is Hobbes real or not real, which, I mean, sort of the nature of the tension is the fact that it sets up the question to not matter. Mm-hmm. Whereas, as we talked about with I Kill Giants, there is a clear division between what's real and what's not real, and the child is more of a true-to-life child, and perhaps that makes it a little bit more adaptable. Uh, let's talk a bit about how these two texts fit together 
in terms of these are both narratives that are heavily about children and yet very clearly written by adults. And as a medium, what does does comics give us an access there that it is a medium that works better for adults talking about children? Well, I mean, I feel like it kind of probably gets back to that Scott McCloud's theory of amplification through simplification. Sort of the idea that the simpler a drawing is, the more universal it becomes. Children and animals and fantasy characters are kind of all set up to work really well with that concept of amplification through simplification. Mm-hmm. As much as, and I think we're probably going to talk about gender in these strips, in these comics as well, but... As much as Calvin and Susie are kind of differentiated based on gender, they're also very universal. I mean, I've already talked a lot about how I was like a little girl that intensely identified with Calvin. The gender aspect didn't matter that much to me, partly because he's a child in which those rules and roles are a little bit looser. And I think the comics form works quite well for that, Mm -hmm. through that sort of technique. And really quickly, what you say about simplification and amplification really resonates with me. Uh, One of the aborted questions involved uh, that these are both works with pretty small casts when you get down to it. Hmm. uh, You've got the 10th anniversary edition there. I think Watterson talks a bit about his failed attempt to introduce an uncle figure into the strip. And it's really fascinating just how limited the uh, I Kill Giants is cast-wise, that it is very much about the mother, but the mother is barely a character. Yeah. Well, I think, I don't know, I Killed Giants, I think what's kind of interesting about the dynamic is um, that it's a horrible tragedy seen through the eyes, specifically of a child. Uh, the idea of a human being coping <laughs> with death is obviously sad, but, but when it's a child who is going to lose her mother, like even Disney, as much as they love orphaning everybody, they rarely show it actually being gone through. And when they do, it's, it's the worst. It's, it's Bambi <laughs> and the Lion King, right? Um, so, so here, the weight of that, that tragedy from the perspective of a young child, I, I think it, it holds a lot, uh, especially in terms of a young child who is clearly desperately clinging to her childhood. Uh, she's trying to hold on. She doesn't want to go through that. Uh, and the giant itself, I mean, it's, it's kind of the, the great red herring of the book. She thinks the giant is death coming for her mother. It's not. The giant is the realization that her mother has to die. Uh, and, and it delivers that to her downright gently. Um, in a way that's kind of, I don't know, really psychologically compelling. What would you say is the intended audience for I Kill Giants? Like yeah. or I was thinking about that. That's a tough one. I was really, because yeah. sometimes when I read these kind of all ages or children's texts, whatever we want to say, I, I often think, would I have read that or enjoyed that as a kid? I just, I never read anything even vaguely like I Kill Giants as yeah. a child or a young adult, so I can't imagine how I would have reacted to it. I don't, but is that the audience? Is it I for mean, adults? Who is it for? I guess I it's think, probably for I both, think you'd have to make a hard case that almost any image book is for kids, yeah. or is it designed for a child audience? I mean, I can think of specific single examples, but I don't think I don't think that's a comic publisher that's aimed at kids. I can say that the book was, I believe, nominated for or won an Eisner Award for material published for 13 to 17-year-olds, whether or not that's the actual audience. I could see reading it at that age and understanding it. I'm not sure I'd seek it out. I can't imagine being a teenager reading a book about a child. Yeah. I would never do that. That's interesting. I would never have done that at that age. I was like trying to read adult books. I think in terms of audience, this is very much a book written to be an indie film, and the audience is whoever watches indie films. Sure. So would we say we're in agreement that as much as it might seem like the intent of this book would be to help a child going through a similar situation get over it, I can't for the life of me think that that would be successful, and yet it has that kind of almost moralizing purpose. Yeah. Sure. I, I mean, it, it, it's a fun feedback loop, right? The idea that you have an adult trying to write a childhood experience that might actually be designed consciously or subconsciously to resonate with adults. Yeah. Because uh, it seems to me that's more the audience I Kill mm-hmm. Giants found. I don't know. Um, I was kind of thinking the same thing about Calvin and Hobbes, though, in terms of who is it for? Like, like we all read it as kids, but we've also said that when we look back at it, it, it holds up really, really well. 
Well, I would say that in the great tradition of comic strips, it mm. appeals to a huge diversity of audiences. I mean, this was this comic strip was a point of connection for me and my parents. Like, we both right. thought it was funny. We enjoyed it together when I was nine and they were 40. You know, I, I feel like we both enjoyed it equally for slightly different reasons. And that's what a comic strip is supposed to be. That might be a good moment to zero in a little on an element of Calvin and Hobbes. Um, in terms of, again, that simplification and amplification, Anna, what role do you see Hobbes as animal playing? Yeah, it's a hard question. I really hoped that the book I reviewed for this week, Animal Comics, would get into it, but Calvin and Hobbes is only referenced briefly and not the, top, not the subject of any of the essays in that anthology. I mean, he's not a straight animal allegory figure. He doesn't... I mean, the wise tiger is kind of like an allegor allegorical figure, and he has certain animal behaviors, but I don't know. I'd almost be more curious about what you guys thought. Well, I think someone, someone has mentioned this previously in this discussion, that it's really interesting that Hob, usually the animal figure, the fantastic figure, is the wild, bombastic one of the pair in these kinds of stories, and it's almost interesting that Hobbes is not always, but frequently in comparison to Calvin, the grounded one. Yeah, well, he fills that role of being, you know, he often has comments about like, well, you're only human, or that's why I don't like humans, or not quite as baldly as that. But I mean, that sort of idea that he can be outside of human society a little bit and allows him to be that voice of reason sometimes, or at least that, you know, face of reflection for some of the human behaviors that Calvin sometimes models quite well in the sense that he behaves badly and has that intense narcissism. Yeah, and then as mentioned, Hobbes also has that um, that, that animal instinct still within him. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I think in that sense, he's, he's almost a good role model for someone who is extremely good at exhibiting rational and naturalistic characteristics um, within the same sort of vessel. Uh, he, he knows the joy of pouncing and the joy of rolling in the sun <laughs> and having his tummy rubbed, but he also knows the joy of philosophy. He's quite capable of letting things go if he needs to. Well, would you say that Hobbes is the more innocent character between him and Calvin? Or do you think they like just model innocence differently? Because Hobbes has that animal innocence in the character, right? I mean, he's sort of, oh, just being in front of the fireplace is so completing and everything. Whereas Calvin's like TV and consumerism. Yeah. And... Well, Michael, you Michael mentioned the, the, the Wordsworth comparison, right? Yeah. And it's weird because to me, I always saw Calvin as Blake. Well, if we yes, want to be romantic. The essay I was referring to does draw on Blake as well and okay. songs of childhood and innocence and so forth. What's the Wordsworth connection? Because Wordsworth is perceived as the more rational... Well, Wordsworth is very much about the nostalgia of childhood. Though. Yeah, sure. The innocence and the, the almost nat naturalist aspect of children. Yep. And I, I think that's the kind of things that was being drawn on there that Calvin is naturally... I've said that too many times now... Uh, <laughs> is drawn towards nature, that he is at his best when he is tobogganing yeah, yeah. or yeah. expressing his creativity or even the bizarre snow monsters. Yeah, I mean, if I'd say that there's... The, when the comic is at its most idealistic, it's in the moments when Calvin and Hobbes work together well. You know, I mean, sort of in the exuberance of Calvin Ball or something, which right. I, I think mm -hmm. does celebrate them in a way that is not critical it's just a celebration of their creativity and their bond and you know <laughs> coloring outside the lines and all of those wonderful childhood things but but yeah i don't know to me they both model innocence but model it slightly differently and maybe it's that sort of interplay of different interpretations mm -hmm. of innocence that's one of the things that's really effective yeah. and quite timeless about it and arguably I don't want to say more sophisticated than something like I Kill Giants, because that's not fair. I mean, that's an apples and oranges comparison. But I, I do think it's one of the things that helps this strip really stand out. Yeah, I, honestly, I might concede that. I, I would probably argue that Calvin Hobbes is, in fact, a more sophisticated use of the comics form than I Kill Giants. I hate saying things like that because it's such a, <laughs> it's such a value judgment that is... Yeah, it's true. You know, it's subjective. Things, but things offer different things. And, some uh, things are so good. <laughs> I mean, I would say just just to add on what you're what you're saying about Calvin. I, I think where the strip achieves its greatest insights mm -hmm. uh, is when it's pointing out the absurdity of the non-natural life of the okay. contemporary existence that we all kind of have as sort of like suburban slaves and that kind of stuff. That's where I think it, it really um, hits things effectively with its philosophy. Mm -hmm. 
One of the sort of resonances between the two texts is that both of them feature minor bullying characters, characters that stand in opposition to our imaginative protagonists. How do you see these figures in terms of these two texts? Well, I don't know who we want to start with. I mean, I think we both have some issues with sort of the bully character in I Kill Giants. Maybe we should start there. Sure. Um, Taylor is, uh, and and I were talking about this um, beforehand, she's a little like like archetypal uh, as a bully. She's kind of two-dimensional. She's there to represent sort of the broader pains uh, within Barbara's life. Uh, but I don't know, maybe you could argue that, that, that Mo has a little bit of that as well, as sort of the um, spirit of a larger I would say antagonism. If, if Taylor's two-dimensional, Mo is one dimension. Yeah. <laughs> See, I think that's fair. But to me, the character of Mo works a little bit differently, first of all, because he's funny. Like, his exchanges with Calvin are often quite funny. And because Calvin's not set up as being an uncomplicated hero figure or or sympathetic figure, then Moe's tormenting of Calvin is not one-sided, just in the sense that Calvin's a jerk too, so it's not... But he's very rarely a jerk to Moe. It's a very one-sided relationship. No, in that sense, yeah. But I I did just find it still less problematic than the one in I Kill Giants, where the bully figure was... We have to get into the sort of the physical representation of the bully character, too, in I Kill Giants. I mean, she is a large girl wearing... What is the shirt that she's wearing? Like, she's wearing some sort of diva something shirt at some point. I mean, it's like part of her terror is her gender deviance. She's quite, I want to say, masculinized kind of in the artwork. Her size is very intimidating. So potentially we've got almost some transphobia as well as fat shaming built into what makes the character intimidating and evil. And the degree to which the character is evil is really outrageous to me. And like, it's not that I Kill Giants is a particularly subtle comic, but at the same time, it it's a quite sophisticated comic in a lot of ways. And the conflict with the bully escalates to her attacking them with an axe and saying she's going to kill them, <laughs> which I don't know what they were going for there. Am I supposed to think that that actually happened? I mean, that's terrifying. I mean, that... That's like she shouldn't get to go back movies. to school. I mean, it's just... Anyway, I don't know. <laughs> this is another area where I think the film... The film deviates, and in a way, I think that really works. That yeah. uh, uh, Rory Jackson plays the Taylor character, and it's much more. It's much less of the hulking bully and more the tall, gawky, mean girl type. And... I think that works a lot better, that she is portrayed more as someone who has her own insecurities and so forth. Yeah, and again, doing hulking monster through, you know, gender deviance and, like, bodily deviance is not a good look. And it it doesn't feel like they're trying to make a connection between her and the novel's other hulking monsters, the giants. It doesn't really, at least it didn't read to me like they were trying to make that kind of. There's some interesting parallel. I think from Barbara's perspective, you could argue that Taylor is a giant. Do you know what I mean? Like just the way she attacks her, she tries to attack her with her her axe thingy uh, and the way she perceives her as being kind of in her way. So I, I think there's an element of it, but, but I agree. It's I would not, say it's not the giant is given a lot more sympathy and nuance yes, than yes, the Taylor character, though, which kind of gets to the heart of what yeah. the problem with this character is. Anna has our academic rating for the episode. Take it away, Anna. Thank you. So this week I'm reviewing... The anthology Animal Comics, Multi-Species Story Worlds and Graphic Narratives, edited by by David Herman and published in 2017 by Bloomsbury. So this book offers an expansive look at comics in which various forms of humans and animals, or if you prefer, human animals and non-human animals, interact, fight, fall in love, hang out, and sometimes, just sometimes, learn from each other. As a number of the collection's contributors observe, comics and animals have a long and tangled history, but it's a strangely untold and uninvestigated history. Animal or animal-like characters abound in comics, from Mickey Mouse-esque funny animal comics to the decidedly unfunny world of Art Spiegelman's Holocaust memoir, Mouse. One contributor, Glenn Wilmot, even suggests that all comics characters could be conceived as both monstrous and animalistic. Yet scholars have to date done not all that much to dig into how and why comics, the comics form is so inviting and so, u- so useful for telling stories about and with animals. 
This absence has interested and bothered me since I first started studying comics, so when I first heard about this collection several years ago, I was really excited to read it. Now that I finally have read it, it didn't quite live up to my personal expectations, and I'll get into why in a moment, but first, let's talk about some of the good stuff. The scholarship in this collection is always rigorous, and the subject matter is laudably diverse. It's got chapters about Mickey Mouse alongside chapters about insect subgenre manga, chapters about recent award-winning genre fiction like Saga, and experimental indie comics like Adam Hines' Duncan the Wonder Dog. There's also a chapter about the possibilities and pitfalls of using animal comics in the classroom, and even a chapter of experimental art and writing on the theme. Throughout, there are invitations to look at familiar texts in new ways, as well as arguments about how newer, less familiar texts can help us look at old ideas in new ways. I don't, however, think this would be a particularly good collection for general interest readers. Most of the chapters are situated within philosophical theory, and if you're someone like me, who doesn't deal with philosophical theory on a daily basis, you're going to find yourself having to look up some terms. To put it more simply, the language used throughout the collection isn't always terribly accessible. In this collection, you're going to find more stuff about theories of co cognition and post-classical narratology than about more concrete things like historical production contexts, or the influence of particular social and cultural movements on particular representations. My personal wish is that there had been more stuff about the comics form itself, and why comics produce so many human-animal stories. Some chapters do attempt to tackle this. The Glenn Wilmot chapter I mentioned before stands out in this regard. From that essay, I want to share a small passage about Mickey Mouse that I particularly loved. So this is from Glenn Wilmot's essay. As a character who must be grasped as, as a particular kind of stylistic artifact in order to make sense and be recognized as a coherent person, the comic's character is hardly recognizable in the same way we understand conventional literary characters. Mickey is a loopy, curvy thing of balls and tubes drawn in exactly the same way as everything in his story world. Easy, swooping lines of round, blunt, soft, smooth, airy shapes, nothing too big or too small. Everything is fully lit, unshaded, visible. Overly complex things like floors and buildings trail off languorously into empty spaces of it doesn't matter what. Style works both functionally to unify cognitive incoherence in a purely aesthetic way, and semiotically to express, in this case, a world in which character is holistically embedded, in which things, including persons, are clear, open, and distinct without gradation or ambiguity. I love how this passage tries to capture the poetics of comics, highlighting the irrationality of comics worlds and how easily we accept this irrationality, which is, of course, part of why comics can be so hard to describe. It's a bit like we don't have a vocabulary to discuss something which, like Mickey Mouse or Calvin and Hobbes, is so simple and so complicated at the same time. But, as I said, the operation of the comics form is not necessarily a concern of the collection as a whole. Most contributors seem more concerned with what animal comics can tell us about philosophy than what animal comics can tell us about comics. Which, to be clear, is a totally valid choice. It's just not my personal favorite choice. Overall, I would definitely recommend this collection to other comic scholars with the caveats mentioned above, and I would very definitely recommend it to scholars working on anything related to human-animal relations. All of the comics discussed in the collection deserve to be talked about more, and hopefully the many things this collection does well will help make that happen. Alright, we are wrapping things up now, but before we sign off, we've each got recommendations of similar-ish uh, <laughs> comics to our pairings today. I'm going to take one from my childhood that I read at probably too young an age. Um, I'm going to recommend the strip Bloom County by Berkeley Breathed, which also continues some of the sort of imaginative ideas of Calvin and Hobbes, while also injecting some satire of real-world politics. I tried to read it as a kid, but I only liked the cat. <laughs> like, I the cat that years. becomes tr Donald Trump? I, don't, I didn't get that far in it, obviously, <laughs> but um, I wanted to recommend, well, I was thinking of kind of things that influenced me as a kid and, you know, anthropomorphic animals and whatnot, so I thought of the Rupert Bear books by Mary Tourtel, for those of you who know those which were another big influence on me as a kid. And they're not necessarily comics, but they're quite comic book-esque in, in terms of the way they tell their stories. So that's my rec. Uh, my recommendation is coming from a slightly different place. Um, favorite books that I read to my kids. Uh, I will choose Sandra Boynton's Happy Hippo Angry Duck. Uh, 
<laughs> which has these sort of uh, essentialization skills that are just so important for, for children's authors. And actually tells a kind of really sweet message in a, um, a delightfully small format. And if we wanted to, I could recite it from memory because I've read it so many times at this point, but we'll skip that. Uh, we'd like to give a thanks to St. Jerome's and particularly Zach McDonald for helping us out in terms of equipment. Next time, we'll be reading Carla Speed McNeil's Finder and uh, Linda Medley's Castle Waiting. We'll be looking at volume one of both of those works, but those works are also very, very long, so read what you can and we will too.